I am fantasy and paranormal romance author Leslie Penelope, and welcome to My Imaginary Friends, a look behind the scenes of an author mapping the worlds in my head and making them a reality. Hello friends, today is Sunday, September 11th, 2022, and this is episode 186 of My Imaginary Friends. I'm Leslie. So this week's best thing is... A couple of good things happened. Um, I did a great signing at the local Barnes & Noble in Ellicott City, Maryland with three other authors, Eliza Knight, Mona Schoff, and Christy Barth. We had done this before. We will probably do it again. They keep inviting us back, so that's always nice. And I met some readers um, who came out. I keep meeting readers from B2Weird, the uh, online book club, and they did a great book tour for Monsters We Defy. So, I mean, it was so much fun seeing all those videos and TikToks. And... Um, so yeah, I've been meeting people at different events who are from that book club, so shout out to B2Weird. I think they are open for more members. I will find a link for them and put it in the show notes, because it looks like they do sci-fi and fantasy books by BIPOC authors or maybe other marginalized authors. And yeah, it seems like they're having a lot of fun on the internet reading cool books and posting about them. So I do like meeting people, meeting readers, signing books, all that stuff, and that's been going on. Also, there's just so much science fiction and fantasy on TV. I mean, we're in another period where, you know, Rings of Power is on at the same time as House of the Dragon. We're also watching She-Hulk. So my TV is at a higher level of watching than it usually is, watching three shows. But, um, and I have different thoughts about all of them. I mean, they're all fine. You know, I enjoy, I'm enjoying She-Hulk. I, Rings of Power is, <laughs> I tweeted about it, like, they must think we have immortal elven lifespans because the show is so slow. It's, the pacing is just like, what is happening here? Whereas House of the Dragon, we're getting like one year, three year time jumps and they're just moving it right along. And that feels like it's picking up steam. Um, I did not, was not a huge fan of the first episode of that, but the second and the third have been increasingly good. I think the third one was last week. Matt Smith, who is my second favorite Doctor Who, He's just doing amazing work. I'm hoping he's getting an Emmy nomination because he had that last episode, episode three, I believe. He did all this. Well, he didn't come into the end, but he had a completely wordless performance that got across so much. And at the end of that, I was like, he didn't say a word. And I rewound it and I watched it again. And I was like, he didn't say a word. But you felt so much. And I was just like, I had chills. I, and I was texting my friends who are not watching. I'm like... You, you might want to start watching this show. Um, so of the three of them right now, that one and She-Hulk are probably tied. Rings of Power, I'm still watching. I'm still intrigued. I'm just a little bit bored. Anyway, so my writing update. I have added some afternoon sessions to my normal morning sessions because we are three weeks away from the deadline. and But I'm feeling good about it, which... This week has been had some ups and downs with the writing of the current work in progress, my Black Towns book. And but I'm finding that two writing sessions a day. So the way it's been working out is I will fast draft something in the morning. Well, usually I start by revising what I did yesterday. That's the first thing. So I can get back into the story. Then I fast draft some new scenes. And this is a revision, so these have already been fast drafted, but a lot of times they need a complete rewrite. So that means another fast draft, which is a cleaner, more polished draft that still needs an additional revision. So that's been happening in the morning. Um, sometimes in the afternoon, if I didn't get to that second fast draft, so 
the morning would be revising what I did yesterday. And sometimes that's taking a much longer time. Then it's like, okay, I'll come back in the evening and fast draft the scene. And so the next day in the morning, I'll revise what I did the previous afternoon, afternoon, draft anew. And not every day, but I don't usually write in two sessions because it is exhausting. Fortunately, my day job work has been relatively light. I'm keeping it light for this month. I was like, no new sites in September. I can't start a new build. I'm just doing maintenance. So that keeps it a little bit more manageable in terms of organizing my time and having the time to be able to add a writing session at like three or four o'clock in the afternoon. But I'm also finding that working on it twice a day allows me to keep it in my head more and to keep a handle on all of the different threads more easily because I'm just spending more time on it every day. And so it has a cumulative effect, like an avalanche where, oh, I'm, I'm holding more in my head. I'm keeping these threads together better. So I'm able to connect the dots. My mind is making connections and I'm fixing things that I was afraid. It was going to take me a longer time to fix. So, I mean, it shouldn't be a surprise that spending more time on it will get it done more quickly. But just mentally, I feel like I'm, my synapses are firing a little bit better, better. And, you know, for me, these stories, fantasy stories, I'm doing a lot. I've got a lot of like subplots and ideas. And I, I make a list of things that I know I need to go back to. Like what happened to this object? I try to make a list of significant objects that are mentioned that need to come back or have some sort of resolution because that's easy for them to be left hanging. Like I remember in Whispers of Shadow and Flame, um, Kiara gets a book at the beginning and in multiple drafts, it's like, what happened to the book? Like, where did it go? So that was like on my significant object list. And she was reading the book throughout the novel and I had to have some sort of resolution because it was important. So in this story, yes, there's significant objects. And by making the list, I had the idea, I was like, oh, I know how I can get it to come back further along and make it more significant and, you know, kind of mirror or close the door that you've opened so that you don't just have things that are hanging around or that you introduce and don't do anything with. And I'm trying to minimize that as much as possible. And so it's easy to forget things like that because I don't remember everything I wrote six months ago or maybe not six months, but whenever I first, first wrote this, but it might've been six months ago. And even uh, things I've changed and I don't, remember, it's really easy to forget in a hundred thousand word book, you know, things that happened 50,000 words ago. So I'm finding it easier for my brain to keep, keep a handle on things by touching it more, which obviously should come as no surprise. But even though I had sort of a dip earlier in the week where I was kind of feeling bad about things and just not sure that this was even coming together then I had another bump a couple of days later and I was like, oh, I know this is coming together. I've got this. I really feel like I have a handle on this. And that's just sort of the manic energy that happens when you're writing a book. Like you hate it half the time, you love it half the time, and I have no perspective anymore. That's why I'm trying to just push, get it done, get some time away from it so that my editor has it. She will be able to tell me her thoughts. I will have probably two months away from it so that the next time I come back, I will hopefully have more perspective and can look at it through slightly fresher eyes. I'm not reliable at this moment, so I'm just trying to write it and finish it and get it out of my hair. And the goal is that when I see it again, I will be taking my editor's feedback. Hopefully I'll get another reader or two to check it out so I can compare feedback 
and I will be in love with it again and see how I can fix it and make it something that I love even more. And I'm really proud to be putting out into the world. So that's usually how it goes. And I'm, I'm confident that all the other books have kind of gone that way in general. So it will get there. Several times over the course of the week, people have asked me, how many books have you written? And I've been trying to count them. And I guess it depends on how you count because there's the five traditionally published novels that have come out. And then Ursinger has three novellas and I collected them, but that's not another book, is it? Then Cupid Guild, there's four stories, but one is a novella and three are short stories. And are we counting short stories? Then Angel Born and Angel Fall and Savage City. So I guess that you could count 20 or it could be 14 or 16. It's when people ask authors, how many books have you written? They get this weird, like, panicked expression. That's kind of why, because you're like, well, then there's anthologies that I was a part of, but that doesn't really count as a book that I've published, does it? Unless you do. And then like Echoes of Ash and Tears is in an anthology. And it's also, I published it individually and I put it in a collection. So yeah. How many books have I published? Some, more than some and less than others. Speaking of anthologies, Once Upon a Forbidden Desire is coming out on Tuesday, September 13th. So if you're listening to this in real time, it would be tomorrow. And my short story, Her Majesty's Wolf, which is my Red Riding Hood retelling. I'm calling it a remix because it's not really a retelling, but it is a story inspired by Red Riding Hood, but it's gender swapped. So it features Rowan, my male Red Riding Hood character, and uh, Shani, who is my wolf shifter soldier. And I love the story. I posted the first chapter on my website. I will link to it. I also put it in my newsletter this week. If you're not on my newsletter, you should be. Get into it on my on my website. So that's coming out. 99 cents for pre-order. The price is going up shortly after launch. So you get 20 stories, other kinds of fantasy retellings, different heat levels. They're all fantasy romance. Mine is very sweet. There's no sex scene in my five, 6,000 words. I, I don't know how you get a whole love story and a sex scene in 5,000 words, but Plenty of people have done it in the anthology, so that wasn't uh, that wasn't on the table for me. But yeah, plenty of heat levels, plenty of different kinds of uh, fa- uh, fairy stories, fairy tales, and it's a lot of fun. So check it out for ninety nine cents. I also wanted to give a shout out to Janine who sent me a post that I will link to on Drowned Black Towns, which is part of the inspiration for my current work in progress. And uh, yeah, hit the nail right on the head. The whole the whole backstory of this book that I'm writing, the first uh, inspiration I got was, and I'm sure I'll talk about this when I'm doing marketing for the book, but just to give you a preview, because I don't think I've talked about it on the podcast unless I forgot. It um, Amber Ruffin, her TV show, she did a segment that went viral last summer on drowned towns. And she had a whole list of towns and a lot of them are black towns or a lot of them are white towns. There's a lot of towns under lakes all around the country often due to dams, dam construction. And that's the story of this one. So there are two two towns that I have really based my inspiration on. There's Oscarville, which is the town that's under Lake Lanier, just outside of Atlanta. Lake Lanier is rumored to be haunted. There's a, a lot of, a disproportionate amount of deaths at that lake every year. And there was an all-black, well, it was an all-black town. It was, Oscarville was a town where they kicked out all the black people after a series of alleged crimes by black men that were probably not committed by them. Um, so that is a huge inspiration for this book. They're actually characters from Oscarville. My main character, Jane, is based on very loosely, I shouldn't say based on, I should say inspired by a real person. And then there's the town of Kawalaija, 
which was in Alabama, and that was an all-black town. It, start, it was started by an ex-slave, and they built this whole school. Um, his the, the founder's son created the school, and it was at first supported by Booker T. Washington, and then not for drama, always some drama. But that town was eventually put under Lake Martin, and um, the school had to be moved, and then it shut, shut, and then it shut down, and the founder died. And it was really sad. And so I've sort of combined Oscarville and Kawalijah into two other towns and taken pieces of them. And there's a school in my town, sort of like the Kawalijah school. And yeah, there's there's a lot of inspiration there. I did a lot of research. There's a book that I read. I read two books about Black expulsion in the South. This practice that happened over and over again, where the white people decided, we don't want Black people in our town anymore and kicked them all out. Often at gunpoint, um, often there are there were lynchings. There were accused crimes and lynchings that happened and then propelled this. So that's part of the book. And yeah, so it's 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 all in there. And it's another thing where, unlike the monsters we defy, which is like a very specific real place, Washington, D.C., that I was recreating, here I'm building a new town, a, fi- a fictional town, with these inspirations. There was another town, a black town, that was partially destroyed by a dam in Northern Alabama, I think it was called Beulahville or Beulah Land. And it was another situation, kind of like Kawalijah. It was very, lots of parallels where there was uh, a, f- a former slave who bought a lot of land and created a lot of wealth, basically built this town. And then, you know, the government's building a dam is going to flood a lot of it out and um, change the nature of it. And so I was finding these stories and putting them together and these histories and making them my own, but pulling from all these real life stories that I found. And then adding a magical element to it based in real life, African and African American folk magic, mythology, you know, our culture and trying to make it an entertaining story that's also historically relevant. And I'm really enjoying that. Like these two books have been very different for me. I've been trying to push myself and and do something a little different each time. And now as I'm coming to the end-ish of of this book, the end of this draft is going to be a revision, I'm sure. But I can't help thinking about the next thing that I'm going to write, even though I don't have any brain space for it. But it's in there. And I, I think it's going to be another one of my, I don't know if I can call it a trunk novel because I don't consider it in the trunk, but it's just on the back burner until I have time to focus on it. I'm not going to talk about it now because I don't have brain space for it, but I'm thinking about the next one. And I'm thinking it's, I'm thinking of another historical time period, but much closer to our own, like more my childhood slash young adulthood and doing something in the eighties and the nineties. But we'll see what happens. It's just, just a little preview of something that no one will be able to read for many years because I won't be able to write it for a year. Also, I was on a author chat, an author panel on Margaret Bernard's channel, and I will link to that in the show notes. We were talking about backlists, and yeah, it was a great discussion that we had this past Friday. So check that out if you are a writer and you're interested in learning about marketing and backlists and things like that. That was a lot of fun. So thanks. Shout out to Margaret, uh, and check out her channel. She's got other author chats and always talking about something cool and interesting. Also, another podcast that I listen to Sometimes I've never actually gotten through a whole one, although this is maybe the first one because they're really long. It's the Huberman Lab podcast with Andrew Huberman, who is a like a 
professor at Stanford Medical School. He does like neuroscience and ophthalmology. And so it's kind of, it's like science relating to real life, like how we can implement it. His podcasts are generally an hour or two long and they dive deep and they talk about studies and he's very methodical about it because he's a scientist. So this one was on focus and increasing your focus. And it's got a lot of the whole the whole point of it is kind of to list ways that you can improve your focus from meditation, listening to binaural, like 40 hertz binaural audio, um, supplementation, things like that, like all kinds of techniques from things you can do for free in your own mind to supplements you can take to other activities that you can engage in. And I recommend it. Like I don't think I have a problem focusing in general. I tend to be very hyper-focused. My husband has ADD and I always say that I have the opposite of ADD, whatever that is, because I can pretty easily get into a hyper-focused state to the point where if I'm writing or if I'm coding, I could sit here for hours and not eat and not drink and just do the thing, which is not good for my body, but I don't have the ADD problems. But sometimes I get distracted. And so some of these techniques are good for when you're first sitting down, like in the morning, if I sit, first sit down to write and I'm still a little groggy, sometimes I have to like warm up. I spent a whole 25 minute session, you know, when we write together, we, we do it in sort of Pomodoro. So we set a timer for 25 minutes. And often, you know, the first one will just be fooling around. Occasionally I'll get on social media, although I try not to do that before writing, or I'll get an email or, you know, especially if an email has popped up, um, or I'll just like read an article, like surf the internet. Just sometimes you need to do something, or I feel like I need to do something to warm up, but I'm really just procrastinating. And so some of these techniques I might actually start to try so that I don't lose that first 25 minutes in the warm up period. I can just get into the work faster. The other thing I took away from this podcast was, because I never really took science classes in high school or college, I was not a sciencey person. This may be very self-evident, but I didn't realize that the brain takes up or uses most of your calories. You know, like you always think about, oh, I'm going to burn calories, you know, doing exercise. I'm going to do cardio or lift weights. I go rock climbing. I used to wear a heart monitor to see how many calories I was burning when I was doing other things. But, um, you know, but you have, you think about, I'm going to burn so many calories so I can eat this and then I can burn it off doing that activity. But the brain uses more calories than that. Like almost all the calories every day is used by brain activity, which is why you feel so exhausted after doing creative work. And it was just a connection I had never made. I never really thought about it that hard. I know that after I've written for three hours, I'm like, whew, I feel like I've worked out. Like I don't have the soreness, but I have the same internal fatigue. And it is because I probably just burned as many calories just thinking really hard as I did lifting weights or rock climbing. For me, that was just like, oh, okay. So I can expect that and understand why that's happening and not be like, surprised that I'm, I've just been sitting here typing for two hours and I feel like I just sprinted somewhere. Um, so yeah, I will, I will link to that if you're interested. I think it's cool if, if you have issues focusing. He's done episodes for people with ADHD and some techniques to use. I didn't actually listen to that one since I don't have that problem, but you can look through um, other other episodes because I find that I listened to part of them, like this one on sleep 
that I listen to this one on exercise and just getting some things that I might be able to use. I might be able to pull in one or two techniques that have been researched and and not just like bro science or pop psychology, but like things that people who are researching for a living have kind of read reports on and are saying, oh yeah, this is a good thing to do. Because I realized recently how many like studies, scientific studies that are published in peer-reviewed journals are really bad, like are not well done and... There's other podcasts that I listen to that talk about that. but So you do have to be careful when someone says, oh, well, this study's proved this. And my husband actually does this because I was like, oh, well, I was talking about something I can't remember. And some kind of nutritional thing. We should do, do this. And I was like, there was a study that I read that, or I didn't read, I read an article that read the study, that talked about the study. And he was like, well, what this, look at the study. Where was it published? Who did it? How was it reviewed? And I was like, I, I, I don't know how to do all of those things. <laughs> you went to medical school, you look at it. But just because an article says that this has been proven in a study does not mean it's actual good science. There are a lot of poorly done studies out there that are getting published. And that is my point. So I feel like listening to people who take it very seriously, who I feel like I can trust, and then not obviously can't do everything because you shouldn't do everything, but picking up one or two things and trying them and trying to improve yourself and your focus and your and ways to meet your goals. And finally, I read an interesting article called Publishing Will Never Be Fair. And I think it's sort of in commentary or in conversation with sort of like the pushback to people like James Patterson, who got into trouble recently for saying something along the lines of, it's really difficult for white male writers to get published these days. You know, he might have said it even more stringently than that. But the in the past five years or so, the fact that so many more marginalized authors who hadn't been published in larger as large numbers are getting published more. So there are people who feel like they're being pushed out like white men. And it goes through some interesting statistics on that, which I won't go through. But um, there's a quote from it that says, back when the problem was a lack of diverse books, it was known that the dearth of minority authors was at least in part a problem of preemptive discouragement. Many promising writers expecting the door to be slammed in their face simply didn't bother trying to get through it all. And that's actually my story. You know, I never, I didn't self-publish first because I had been rejected. I self-published because I wanted to, and I never tried to tr- traditionally publish when I first came out with my books because I... Not that I expected the door to be slammed in my face, but I didn't want to deal with any of the potential drama that I'd heard about that, you know, Black writers dealt with with traditional publishers. So that was a, I guess I was preemptively discouraged from even trying. And so now we're in a time when more and more writers who look like me are getting published and having better experiences in the industry. And other people feel like they're getting pushed out and the pushback against that philosophy is that, well, it's a balance. It's like if there were mostly white people publishing for so long, then maybe the pendulum swings into, you know, an overcorrection and it'll swing back and forth. And that's kind of what the, the article ends up saying. Like it, it, at the end, it says, like all literary trends, this one won't last forever. And I think by trend, the author means the prevalence of, you know, marginalized authors being published and, and, if it is true, if you accept the hypothesis that it is very difficult for a white male author to be published today, or at least more difficult than it used to be, because they are still getting published, then 
you might consider this a trend that will not last forever. And the article goes on to say, eventually some new attention-arresting thing will come on the scene, and the identitarian reckoning of 2020 will be yesterday's news. Whenever that happens, and whatever it is, a handful of lucky writers will get swept up by the cresting wave of the zeitgeist and carried to glorious high ground, while everyone else looks on and makes grumbling noises. So it's a little bit cynical, but I do think that pendulum tends to swing back and forth. Things come and things go. We saw, like even in TV, you know, back when UPN and, um, what was the other one? It came, it came the CW. Was it CW then? It was called something else. There were all these black shows that happened, you know, all these sitcoms, and then they went away and there was nothing for years. And then they come back. So is it going to be like that? Is it like now we're in a moment where so many people are getting published and depending on how the sales go, I'm sure, will it swing back to less of us getting published and then in 10, 20 years, will it swing the other way? You know, these things are businesses and they're looking at money. And and I think, you know, a lot of these books, I think, are doing well. But as we've seen with this publishing industry, with the um, Simon & Schuster, Penguin Random House trial, publishers don't really know what they're doing. So they don't know how to sell books. So some will sell, some won't. And the ones that won't will convince people that, oh, those books don't sell. So maybe we should go back to these other people who some of their books don't sell either. And and um, yeah, it's never going to be fair because publishing is not a meritocracy. Neither is just about anything else, at least in this country or the world. I just thought that those were interesting points and I've heard writers complaining, um, white, white women also, about not it being more difficult for them to get published because all of the agents and editors are looking for diverse voices and they want something different and new and fresh than the things that have been at the top of the heap for so long, which I think is natural. And it's natural for them to complain about it. Um, but it's not a thing that's going to last forever because nothing does depending on who you are and what and how difficult you feel like it is to get published. It's a good or bad thing, but I don't know if it's good or bad because it just is. Because with everything, there's a pendulum and what's hot today is not hot tomorrow. So if you are of the opinion that it is easier for a marginalized author to be published today, wait, <laughs> just wait. And And from my perspective, that's nothing that any of us can control. You know, I think that there have been hopefully permanent changes to the industry in terms of focusing on diversity of the people who are making the decisions. That's really important. And that is going to be more long lasting than any trend. If there is a trend to publish diverse voices now and that trend goes away in the future, then hopefully we're left with more diverse agents and editors and decision makers who are looking for something different that are always going to be there. And so then if the trend goes that way, those people will still have those jobs, hopefully. And yeah, it won't be it won't be like the television landscape where all the black shows went away for years. I'm hoping it's not like that. I guess we'll see. So on that happy note, that's it for me for this week. I will hope to talk to you next week. For episode show notes and to sign up for the Footnotes newsletter and get the show notes in your inbox, go to myimaginaryfriendsshow.com. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and watch the video episodes on YouTube. You can email me at podcast at lpenelope.com. And I would really appreciate a rating and review to help support the show. My Imaginary Friends is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. For more fantastic podcasts, go to 
alec.media slash podcast.